I'd ask you to turn in the uh, back of the hymnal, if you would. Uh, there you'll find uh, the Heidelberg Catechism. Heidelberg Catechism is a teaching tool and a succinct summary of the Bible's teaching. Um, in 52 Lord's Days, in order that the sequence of the year might be followed uh, through the catechism. Although it is uh, a human document, it is not inspired, infallible, or divine in any way, um, it is a biblical uh, document in many ways. And that is because it follows the outline of the book of Romans, for example, sin, salvation, and service, or misery, deliverance, and gratitude, or guilt, grace, gratitude, um, if you will. So uh, there, uh, it's biblical in that respect. And of course, catechism, cat, catecheo, is a word found in the uh, gospel according to Luke, when Luke uh, says that he, uh, as he addresses Theophilus, uh, that he writes to confirm the things in which Theophilus has been catechized, catecheo. So it's a uh, biblical teaching method as well. You may recall how often Jesus uh, teaches by means of questions and answers, even ask, answering questions with questions. So uh, it's not only that, but it is a document uh, as, a, as a succinct summary of the Bible, which has been proven tried and true over the course of many centuries since it's been written. It's subject, of course, to your scrutiny and mine as to whether or not it conforms to the Word of God <coughs> and what is taught there as we go through it. But for centuries, uh, Christians like us have had the catechism uh, subject to scrutiny and has been fine, uh, found tested, tried, and true as a faithful summary of the Word of God. We're looking at Lord's Day, chapter 26. If you haven't yet located it, it's found on page 883. 883. We are in the second of those three sections of the Catechism dealing with deliverance from sin and misery through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as noted last time, sacraments are located in this section because they are pictures of salvation through uh, faith in another. Uh, a substitute and sacrifice, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we pick up with baptism, specifically uh, this Lord's Day and next, and uh, question 69 uh, through 71 are what will concern us uh, today. So if I read the question, would you please respond with the answer? How does holy baptism remind and assure you that Christ's one sacrifice on the cross benefits you personally. In this way, and what does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit?
And where does Christ promise that we are washed with his blood and spirit as surely as we are washed with the water of baptism? Then if you'd open your Bible to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 3, just before the book of Hebrews, after 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus chapter 3, we'll pick up at verse 4. This is the word of God. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Last uh, Lord's Day, we began to consider the subject of the sacraments and noted that uh, this is the largest section in the Heidelberg Catechism. There are, if I remember correctly, 22 questions dealing with the sacraments. We wondered why so many when there's only one um, on the scriptures, there's none on the church, and uh, there are so many fewer uh, questions in the catechism dealing with what we might consider more important subjects or topics. And we noted that this, of course, is a historical document. It was written at a particular point in the history of the church, and in that particular point in which it was written, there were great controversy over the sacraments. And we noted that in stating that, there continued to be controversy with respect to the sacraments down to our day. So hopefully some of the teaching from this section of the Catechism will address uh, some of those controversies and illuminate what the Bible has to teach um, about them. Now, I should state, departing from Titus chapter 3, that the matter of the sacraments, though controversial, are not insignificant, incidental, or something which can be easily dismissed. And I want to point you to a couple of passages in the Bible with respect to that. We're dealing with baptism, so look, if you will, first at Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. We have not yet had occasion to examine what the scriptures have to say between the connection, uh, uh, of the connection between circumcision as the Old Testament rite which was bloody, and baptism as the New Testament rite of the covenant, uh, which is bloodless because the blood of Christ has been shed. But suffice it to say, in anticipation of dealing with that in due time, uh, this passage deals with circumcision. And as a sign of the covenant, which in Genesis God had instructed Abraham and his descendants to give uh, to uh, uh, Abraham and to his descendants after him, 
Um, it demonstrates why this is not incidental or insignificant. Look, if you will, at verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took out a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. We mentioned last week that sacraments are called sacraments and not ordinances or some other term, as is often used in the North American Evangelical Church, because there's something mysterious going on in the administration of the sacraments. Well, here we have an example of that, all right? God came, and the text is ambiguous, admittedly. Whether he was going to kill Moses or whether he was going to kill the child is not ex exactly clear. But the fact is, God was going to kill somebody because the sign of the covenant had not been administered to the child. That's not a memorial. That's not uh, some other term. That's something very serious, and God takes it very seriously. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 with respect to what we refer to as the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians ch chapter 11, often read when we celebrate the Lord's Supper um, in our midst, usually the third Sunday of every month we celebrate it. So verse 27, just without having read the whole chapter, apparently there are some in the Corinthian congregation that, uh, consistent with their being kind of a whacked out church, were abusing the Lord's Supper, all right? And that's what's going on. So verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread of the Lord and drinks the or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And listen, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. It's not simply a memorial. It is a memorial. We remember the Lord's death. It's not simply an ordinance. There's something more going on. God says, you mess with what I have instituted, and I'll kill you. Some are sick, and some have died. God brought sickness and death on the Corinthian congregation because they were uh, abusing that which he had instituted as a holy ordinance. Same as what we find in Exodus chapter 4 with respect to the sign and seal of the covenant in circumcision. So, whatever one might think about these two, baptism and the Lord's Supper, we ought not to so cursorily dismiss them and say, well, you know, it's not that important. God takes them very seriously. That's why when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, for example, in our congregation, we verbally fence the table, as it's called. That is, we talk about who may and who may not properly come to participate in communion. It's not an open meal for anybody and everybody that wants to come. Why? 
because we don't want God's judgment brought down on this congregation the way that he did on Corinth. No, you have to participate in a worthy manner. You have to believe the Lord Jesus Christ is the sacrifice for your sins. You have to not be living in unrepentant sin. You have to have joined yourself to a body and become a member of the church. You can't say you love Jesus and despise his body. And we said, well, if you meet those requirements, come on. You're a member of the family. If you're visiting today, come and join in the meal, which is for the family. It's a family meal. But if not, please just let the bread and wine go by. Because we don't want you to be judged. We don't want us to be judged either. Okay. We ought not to consider these things unimportant, insignificant, or incidental. God takes them very seriously. So we should too. So let's go to Titus chapter 3 and get on with the uh, sermon about baptism. Talking about symbolism and meaning, all right? So um, symbolism, we said that the sacraments are signs and they point, they're a visible sign that points to an invisible spiritual reality, all right? And we noted last week that both baptism and the Lord's Supper point us, focus on the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground and foundation of our salvation, all right? So they are an outward sign of an inward spiritual reality. And the catechism in question 69 picks up on the language of verse 5 in Titus chapter 3, all right? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, just as water washes the dirt from our bodies, we all took a Saturday night bath or a Sunday morning shower, all right? So also Christ's blood and his spirit wash dirt, or if you will, sin from our souls, all right? <clears throat> so does this mean that every baptized person is truly cleansed by the death of Christ and the rebirth uh, or the regenerating act of the Holy Spirit? Of course not, all right? doesn't mean that you must be baptized in order to be saved. Of course not. The thief on the cross was never baptized, and yet he heard from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ, today you will be with me in paradise. All right? There are numerous instances of those who receive the sign and seal of the covenant who are not uh, in eventually or inevitably uh, saved or infallibly saved. All right? So we're not saying that. However, it is a picture, it is a picture, a sign of an invisible spiritual reality. What is happening, it's a picture, it's pointing to the work of the Holy Spirit being poured out on an individual, all right? It's that salvation is solely by an act of God's initiative, not by anything that we have done. That the Holy Spirit is the one who, when poured out on an individual and in an individual, cleanses them and applies the work of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> John Calvin, um, on this verse in Titus chapter 3, said, It is therefore the Spirit of God who regenerates us, makes us new, re-again, generate, birth, all right, rebirths us, and... <clears throat> excuse me, and makes us new creatures. But because his grace is invisible and hidden, a visible symbol of it is beheld in baptism. All right? Now, it raises the question, if uh, water is a symbol, how much water 
should there be? This has been a perennial discussion or debate, if you will, in the Christian church down throughout the centuries. And let me just say, the amount of water is not important in Scripture. No matter how many Christians or churches may be divided on this issue. And the issue, of course, has to do with the mode of baptism. How should we baptize? Should we do it by immersion, dunking, right? Should we do it by sprinkling, or should we do it by pouring? Well, let me just say that immersion is not essential to baptism. As a matter of fact, truth be known, it's the only mode, immersion, uh, sprinkling, and pouring, which is not mentioned in the Bible. Immersion is not mentioned in the Bible, despite the protestations of many people that baptizo, baptize, I baptize, means um, immersion. So let's just look at a couple of verses because uh, we're good Bereans. We want to be shown in the scriptures uh, how this is so. Look at 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 2. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 2. Beginning in verse 1, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So Israel in the Exodus, right, crossing the Red Sea, were baptized. We might well ask whether or not there were children in that company, but that's another issue, all right, to be taken up next week. But they were baptized in the Red Sea. Now, if you're a good student of the Bible, and you should be a good student of the Bible, you should know how did Israel cross the Red Sea? Anybody? Dry ground. They were all baptized, but there was no water. <laughs> they were all baptized, but there was no water. Who was baptized in the Red Sea? I'm figuratively speaking. Egypt. They're the ones who got dunked, right? <laughs> Egypt got dunked. Uh, look, at, um, uh, look at Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 10. If you're interested in pursuing this further, I don't want to take up all our time on this particular point. Uh, John Murray, professor of theology at Westminster Theological Seminary, uh, recognized and uh, as a, a, an excellent systematic theologian, has a whole uh, book on this subject, uh, baptism. You can pursue that uh, further if you like. Hebrews 9 verse 10 talking about uh, in the Old Testament, all right? Uh, not yet, uh, verse 8, by this the Holy Spirit indicates the way into the holy place not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the consciences of the wor wor worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, or if you're looking at another version, diverse baptisms. The word is baptism in the Greek. Regulations for the body imposed till the time of the Reformation, all right? In what do those diverse baptisms consist? Well, look at the text, verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, all right? Visible sign of an invisible spiritual reality. Look at verse 19. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, uh, it took the blood of 
calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. And verse 21, and in the same way he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Then look down at verse 22 of chapter 10. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Same symbolism as we find in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. All right? So, immersion cannot be proved to have been the mode in a single instance in the Bible. It is the only mode amongst immersion, sprinkling, and pouring which is not found in the Bible. So, symbolism. What about the meaning? Question 70, our catechism teaches us the meaning. What does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit, right? Well, turn back to Titus, Titus chapter 3. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. What is the meaning? The meaning, as we have stated, is an inward washing by the blood of Christ sacrificed on the cross. Remember, what is baptism pointing us to? The blood of Jesus shed on the cross is the only ground and foundation of our salvation. And the Holy Spirit. This is a beautiful picture of the gospel. All right? That's why last week I said to the children, this is a matter of show and tell. In the gospel being preached, we hear the good news of the gospel. In the sacraments, we see the good news of the gospel. All right? Jesus Christ accomplished salvation by the shedding of his blood. Um, on the cross in the place of sinners, and the Holy Spirit applies that blood to the doorposts of the hearts of his people. All right? Substitutionary uh, sacrifice is payment for the sins of his people. Our guilt goes to Jesus. Our punishment, the wages of sin, is death. The soul that sins, it must die is placed on Jesus. Jesus dies in the place of his people. He bears the punishment that I deserve, all right? And he takes the guilt of my uh, sin upon himself. And by his death, he merits life and salvation for us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us in order that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The obedience that you and I don't have, well, let me just pause here for a moment, not assume that everybody is familiar with this passage or knows what it is that I'm talking about, all right? God requires two things, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, all right? All the way back to the Garden of Eden. God requires two things. Adam and Eve required two things. One was perfect obedience. Adam and Eve, you can eat from every tree that's in the garden except this one tree. I expect you to be obedient. And the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Punishment for disobedience. God requires perfect obedience, punishment for disobedience. Jesus comes, what? Rewind, right? Before we get to that, all right? You are not perfectly obedient. If that's a little too much to take this early in the morning, I am not perfectly obedient, all right? I sin in thought, word, and deed, 
every day, all right? Let me just illustrate this for you, okay? If you were to keep a diary of one day of every thought that you had during the course of a 20-hour day, 24-hour day, including your dreams, would you want anybody to read that diary? I don't think so. It would be horrific, I suspect. Mine would. Mine would. You see, what's the point? You're not perfectly obedient. The wages of sin is death. What do you deserve? I deserve to die. I deserve to be punished by God, a thrice holy God before whom sin cannot stand. It must be punished because he is just, but thank God he is the justifier of those who trust in a substitute. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not pay the penalty for their sins. But instead, their sin will be given to Jesus. God made him who knew no sin to be sin, in order that the righteousness, the perfect obedience of Christ, might belong to me and to you. That's the marvel of the gospel. And God looks on one who has trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, as if you had never sinned nor been a sinner. Now, you might say, that's great news. It is great news, but that's not all. God looks at you as if you had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if you were as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for you. Now, man, if that don't knock your socks off, there's something wrong with the state of your heart. That's a glorious message of good news for people who deserve to go to hell. That's the demonstration of God's love. That's how much God has loved those who rebelled and sinned against him. That he's the just God who must punish sin and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. Can I get an amen? Can I get a hallelujah? <laughs> all right, all right, all right, all right, back to it. All right, so anyway, we talked about Christ's death and the Holy Spirit applying it, all right? But that's impossible without the Holy Spirit applying it, and that's what we're told in verse 5, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives faith. It's a gift. It's a very important thing, right? Sometimes, Fernando, when we're in Central Park and we're talking to people about the gospel, so why do you think you're going to heaven? He said, well, I believe. Well, faith never saved anybody. You say, hold on, is this a Christian church or a cult? Huh? You're not saved because you believe. It's Jesus Christ that saves. Not you. Not what you do. He saves by means of faith, but faith is a gift. Faith is given by the Holy Spirit, all right? And makes one a partaker of Jesus Christ and all his benefits. Very important to get this, all right, as we'll talk a little bit more about this next week. Baptism is not a symbol of what you do. It's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of what God does very important that we not be man-centered when it comes to this particular subject. 
Our catechism says he sanctifies us to be members of Jesus Christ. He sets us apart from the world and makes us to be members of Christ. Baptism expresses the verbal content of the gospel in non-verbal form in a picture. And that's why baptism, unlike the Lord's Supper, is passively received. When an adult or a child is baptized, right, they passively receive what God is doing. And his promises are attached to the administration of that event. It's not a picture of belief or faith, but of regeneration of the Holy Spirit's new birth. Sinners are dead, not active, right? And uh, salvation is an act of God alone. God makes alive. And Paul here speaks of union pictured uh, because, uh, in which we are passive. We are buried. We don't bury ourselves. We've not been planted. Uh, we've been planted, not planted ourselves. Our old man is crucified. We've not crucified ourselves. When baptism is described as if it were a symbol of an activity performed by man rather than a union created by God with his son, Jesus Christ, its true meaning is contradicted. More anon. Let me just finish with the point of application here. A lot of this has been uh, teaching important because of the controversial nature of the sacraments, as mentioned, all right? But the Catechism says, to be washed with Christ's Spirit means that the Holy Spirit has renewed and sanctified us to be members of Christ so that So that, here's a purpose clause. Why? So that, more and more we die to sin and live holy and blameless lives. Baptism not only reminds you of what God has done in Jesus Christ, the only ground and foundation of our salvation, but baptism also reminds us of our obligations of those who have received that sign and seal. That you're to die to sin each and every day and more, to, more and more to live godly lives to the glory of God. So let me just conclude with this question. Have you been baptized? I suspect most of you have been baptized, all right? Are you daily dying to sin? And are you daily growing in godliness? Let's pray. We'll pick up next Lord's Day. Father, we thank you for uh, teaching us uh, by word and by pictures. Uh, we ask that you would uh, bless uh, this message to our hearts. Uh, yeah, regarding things that are mysterious, we're often led to have many questions. And it's certainly not wrong to question uh, you. So we ask that you would grant us uh, faith and understanding of these things. And we ask that you would do so for Jesus' sake, who sacrificed himself for sinners. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.